and welcome back to The Voice of the Child. I'm Natasha, your host, and today we're going to be looking at how domestic violence affects children, particularly now that many of us around the world are on lockdown and self-isolating, and children living in domestically violent and abusive homes may now be without any escape routes. To talk about this with me is my guest Rachel Williams, a survivor, campaigner, online independent domestic violence advisor, sometimes called IDVAS, and the founder of Stand Up to Domestic Abuse. Rachel is not only an expert in addressing domestic violence and abuse, she also very sadly lost one of her sons to suicide as a result of the domestic abuse they suffered as a family. Hi Rachel, welcome to the programme. Hi. You have had your own deeply harrowing experience of domestic abuse and if you're happy to, it would be really helpful just to start with what happened to you. So um, I was in a violent and abusive relationship for uh, 18 years from the age of 21 up until I was 39 um, by somebody who I met um, through a a friend, through a neighbour, it was her brother. Um, And Darren was, um, you know, what I thought was quite charming um, and funny. Um, And over the the months, um, we really soon and quite quickly became a couple. Um, I was already a single parent to a two-year-old at the time. Um, And I think it was probably within a year, I was actually um, having his child. Um, So looking back on it now, on reflection, it was really heavily love bombing going on from from day one um, and the grooming process was start had started, but um, because I didn't know anything about domestic abuse and the tactics per- perpetrators use, um, I was unaware that I was falling um, victim to a perpetrator of domestic abuse and violence. Um, so over the next eighteen years, I had we had a son together, Jack, who was born in nineteen ninety five, and over those next eighteen years, on a gradual, slow process. Um, the the abuse and the violence took place and took hold of my life. Can you give some examples of, of what happened to you during that relationship? Um, so the, the very first uh, vivid, really vivid moment of abuse that, um, that I can recall, which was quite serious, um, was when I was seven months pregnant with Jack and we'd had an argument and Darren came running up the stairs because I was shouting something down the stairs to him and he gripped me by the throat and lifted me off the floor by my by, uh, by my throat and, um, and and I can remember him telling me after when he let me go that he let me go because my lip, lips turned blue um, but he was so remorseful um, and he, you know we fell on the floor and cried like a baby and said he would get help and it was all to do with stuff that he'd experienced in his life because he was brought up in a violent household um, and all this was eventually documented in um, my serious case review um, and he was brought up in a violent household and his brother had committed suicide for four years earlier so I just um, forgave him and sort of made um, allowances for his outburst um, but it wasn't wasn't um, just that, you know. Then it was all. It was um, you know. I was a hairdresser. I wasn't allowed to cut a man's hair. Um, I wasn't allowed to socialise with friends. You know, I couldn't go out on a work's Christmas meal, for instance, um, or for a drink with my girlfriends. Um, I was controlled by what I wore. 
um, you know, I couldn't wear short skirts. Um, Darren always uh, preferred me to have my hair short because um, he said all the other slags up town got their hair long. Um, so my hair was always kept short. I wasn't um, allowed to dye it. And one time I did actually um, put a tiny bit of blonde in my fringe whilst in work. Um, I came in the next day um, and asked my boss if she could put something over there to, to um, hide the blonde because it was already put in and bleached up. Um, I said, because Darren didn't like it, um, you know, and, and the control just was over a, a gradual time. Um, and it's, and it's, it's before you know it, you're in it over your neck and, and it's just, you know, how, how do you get out of this? It sounds like that form of control and coercion was frightening you at some point. It was it was extremely frightening because, you know, Darren, you know, as he he was a very angry man, um, and not just that, I had to, to deal with him. He was six foot seven and twenty two stone with a sixty inch chest. He was a bodybuilder, so it wasn't, you know, he wasn't a normal sized man. He was intimidating by his by his sheer presence alone, without the uh the, the spitting in the face or the hair pulling or the slide punches to the back of the head you know he was in a very intimidating figure and did your children obviously you you had one son at that point um before your your son with your your abuser was born did your children notice anything as time went on um my oldest son josh um he um you know used to pick up things um and say he's horrible and i and in, in the end josh used to say i hope he dies of a heart attack um and even jack ever son together used to mock him and say you're like a child um you know because he was very uh used to sulk a lot and and have tantrums and jack used to say it's like i'm the grown-up and you're the child um thankfully they didn't witness uh, a lot of stuff over those years um you know that, but that, that i believe but we know that children do hear and witness stuff but now i realize that you know children are not witnesses to, to domestic abuse and violence they're victims as well because you know what they don't see they hear and then in their in their minds they they magnify it um, to what they think is going on um, and it's just so frightening for them. And we do actually have research now which suggests that in some cases children who've witnessed um, domestic violence are sometimes more likely to suffer greater harm in adulthood than children who've perhaps experienced physical abuse and in your video that you produced with the Home Office you say yourself that the physical abuse wasn't as bad as the emotional abuse. Can you explain why? I think it's, um, and a lot of women I speak to um, through my 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 work, um, it's like once once it's over, once the slap is over, or you know the the hair pulling or or whatever it is, um, you know it's done and dusted. And and certainly in my case, and I've heard other women say as well, then you've got a bit of that honeymoon period where the abuser then is showing a bit of remorse because he wants to win you back over because you could be you know maybe putting your foot down a little bit thinking you've got a bit of control back. You haven't really, it's all all a game, it's the rules of their game. But you are in then, for me personally, for my uh, my situation, I was in a honeymoon period, which would last about two weeks. Um, and Dan would even joke and say, oh, I'm, I'm going to be Daniel now. 
um, and he it was almost like a Jekyll and Hyde character, you know, and I'd get flowers, you know, I would have cups of coffee made for me, you know, and I might get the odd tea made for me, a meal. Um, so you'd always have this sort of respite period. And, but I think with the emotional abuse, it, it's just chipping away every day at your character and that person who you are. And and you almost become a, a, a shadow of your former self and you just lose all self-respect for yourself. And, you know, you, you know that you shouldn't be living in that environment. And it's that cognitive dissonance where, you know, you, you, you know it's not right your thoughts are saying one thing but your actions are doing something else and it's almost like they've got this strangulation hold over you while you're in this environment and did the children get any pushback from um your partner at the time when they perhaps answered him back or said some of the things that you said they said to him at at various different points um now and again um you know they'd have a bit of a backlash but um but the, the kids would say, uh, certainly Jack, because Jack was Darren's, um, he got away with a lot more than Josh would have. Um, and Jack used to say, you know, you're like a child, you want to grow up. And, you know, um, you know why are why you asking, uh, he used to call me Mama. Uh, you say, why are you asking Mama what boyfriend she had when she was 10, you weirdo, and say stuff like that to him, you know? Um, so Jack was quite clued up and quite... Um, quite a, 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 a with it sort of boy um, and he could sort of see see what what Darren was like and could see that he he clearly um, had had issues you then decided at some point that enough was enough and you chose to, to leave your partner what was the breaking point for you I, th- I think for me, the older I was becoming, the less tolerant I was coming of, as, of his behaviour. And I can remember going on holiday with friends about us um, to Tenerife and there was an outburst because we were sharing an apartment. There was an outburst there by Darren and I'd gone off to the beach and I said to my friend, um, who were, they were an older couple, and I said to my friend, I said, I'm going to go down to the beach. I said, you know, just to take this out, outside sort of thing. So I went down to the beach, not thinking that Dan would follow me. And, it, you know, again, he, he caused mayhem, but he did come down the beach to follow me. And I thought, oh, OK, well, at least he's going to be sorry. And, and I'm going to have a, a honeymoon period now for the rest of the holiday. And things changed. Whereas before Dan would apologise this time, he came over and threw a load of sand in my face and ripped um, my handbag off me because there was money in there. Um, and that for me then, I think that was that was the, 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 the straw that almost broke the camel's back because I didn't leave straight away. It was a couple of months after. Um, and I just thought to myself, you know, do I really want to be spending the rest of my life in this environment with this man? You know, do I want to be in, at retirement age with a lot of time on my hands uh, with this man? And the answer was no. And then I can remember coming home, you know, with that thought in my mind, you know, what am I going to do? Because I knew that I couldn't really um, reach out to family as such because of of who Darren was and what he stood for and what he was capable of doing. And, you know, he already had criminal convictions. Um, the police were were quite frightened of him and that all came out in the reports that they, he was known as anti-police um, and, and, you know, he was a force to be reckoned with. And it was like, you know, what 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 do I do? And I, you know, I sort of contemplated and sat on this for a while. And then the straw that really did break the camel's back was on the 9th of July. 
and we'd had an argument in the morning and I was going to do hair for a wedding and um, Dan had come upstairs and started baiting me and I'd gone downstairs and I can remember real vividly standing by the back door gazing out into the garden and it was a sunny day and crying and my eyes really stinging with the tears and I then he came and was breathing down the back of my neck and saying you know what are you going to do what are you going to do and as I walked past him um, into the living room I said I'm going to leave you and then he flung his hands around my throat and started throttling me and that point I remember us being both on the floor um, and I just leapt up um, I found the strength I leapt up and as I leapt up I brought my fist up and laid a, a blow on the top of his head um, which I would have thought he would have seen stars at some point um, and, and then with that, I can remember both the boys were in the room and my oldest boy, Josh, was doing a silent 999 call. And Jack was stood there with a baseball bat, telling him to, to get off me. Um, and then it was like, right, if he's capable, you know, of doing this, you know, what else is he going to be capable of doing? The boys then... Um, I sort of calmed things down pretty quickly because as a survivor of domestic abuse and violence, you're always a, uh, one foot ahead, one step ahead. Um, so I quickly calmed the situation down and I sort of dusted myself off, even though I felt like my neck had been snapped. Um, the boys went back up in their rooms and then Darren started dragging me up the stairs by my both of my hands, um, he held them together. And when we got in the bedroom, um, I managed to break free because he was trying to open his bed bedside cabinet drawer. And I knew exactly what he was going to do because he had knives in there. Um, and he managed. I managed to break free and he grabbed a knife out um, and he was holding it to his wrist. And, and I said, go on, do it. I said, go on, do it, because I could feel Jack behind me. I said, do it in front of your 16-year-old son. I said, that's really clever, you know, go on, do it. And I walked down the stairs, and as I did, Jack said, oh, no, mummy's done it. Um, and that's when I made the call to the um, to his sister first and said, you know, you you better you better get some help. But yeah, I didn't phone the, the ambulance. I didn't phone um, the police. Um, they were called um, because his sister had phoned an ambulance, and they notified the police. And two police officers came um, straight away, two young police officers, uh, as I can see looking back, they're really inexperienced on domestic abuse. And they came in and, I, and they said, where is he? I said, upstairs. And obviously they seen the size of him. And the next thing then I could hear him shouting, get out of my effing house. And these two police officers come running back down the stairs. I was sat in the conservatory with my dressing gown up. Uh, under my chin, uh, hiding any uh, welt marks around my neck and, and mascara all down my face. And they said, are you all right? And I said, yeah. And they left. Wow. Um, yeah. And at what point did you actually physically leave the house with the boys and how did the boys react? So he, he the ambulance came then. Uh, he ended up going to the hospital and um, he then went straight to his um, sisters from the hospital I, at that point, then, um, you know, decided that, that, that enough is enough. Um, and I went to the police and gave a long hyster uh, historical um, statement of, of, of what I'd endured over the years. Um, that went straight up to the Serious Violent Crimes Unit. Um, and eventually, over a, a couple of weeks, 
Darren was arrested because they couldn't locate him, first of all. Um, he was arrested then and he was charged, ironically, with common assault, even though it states in all the reports that I was strangled. Uh, this is one of my campaigns. I want to make make standalone um, an offence for making non-fatal strangulation a standalone charge because of this. Most, most perpetrators are charged with common assault when they throttle or strangle their partners. So after that, then, uh, he was arrested. He was bailed. Um, I managed to move back because I moved out of the marital home for a few weeks um, before I managed to get Darren out of there. And then um, I moved back in. The police come up on the 18th of August and they turned my bedroom into a panic room. I had my bedroom door double skinned with plywood. I had a metal bar to put across in the night. I had locks on my uh, windows, on my extra locks on the doors. The locks were changed. I had cameras. I had a Tescos alarm, which notifies the police if I press a button, and it's an immediate response. Um, and that was on the 18th of August. The 19th of August, I went to work in the hairdressers, um, really on tender hooks with a knot in my stomach, not knowing what what, what I was going to, you know, going to face. You know, sort of thought, this is this is it, now I'm going to finally get my life back. Um and I went to work covering a colleague's day off. I shouldn't have even been in work. And um, I can remember phoning my sister around 10 to 2 in the afternoon and saying, can you go up by uh, the mental health offices to go and see if his Land Rover's there? Because Darren used to drive a very distinctive Land Rover. I said, and see if he's got an appointment with a psychiatrist. Because I knew uh, weeks prior to that, he tried to take an overdose um, and ended up in the, the hospital. Um, and I just had an inkling that he was um, he was going for an appointment um, on that day. And my sister phoned me back and said, no, there's no land over there. And then approximately 2.20, I just finished doing a lady's blow dry and I'd just given her a change back. And I can remember looking at the, the, the shop window went quite dark. And I remember looking at the door to see what was obscuring the light. Um, and as I looked to the door, Darren was filling the door frame and he was pushing the door open and I could see him pulling something out of his bag and it was a, a gun. Um, and at that point, I don't know why, um, I ran towards him and started fighting with him to get the gun off him. Not that I was much of a match for him. And he hit me with the butt of the gun and I can remember falling on the floor. The, the reception desk was over in the commotion. There was an old lady on the floor next to me, Connie, who was in the 90s. Um, there was people fleeing the shop and screaming. As you can imagine, it was a busy Friday afternoon. And then um, I can remember being on the floor and shouting up to him, my God, Darren, you know, think of Jack, think of Jack, trying to sort of reason with him. And, and obviously his eyes were glazed over. Um, and then he just pointed the gun at my chest, um, told me he loved me. But thankfully, I'd, I was mentally again one step ahead of him. And I managed to pull my knees up under my chin. So I was in a fetal position and my, he, he fired, fired the gun and the, the, my left leg took the first blast. And then I can remember thinking, oh, my God, he shocked me and I could smell the gunpowder. And then the receiver of the phone was off and I remember tapping that and trying to do 999. And then I felt another blast and there was another um, shot discharged and that went past my, my ear. Um, and then, then I looked to the left of me and he put the gun down and I believe it was to reload it um, because I knew he did have extra cartridges. 
and then I felt a, a kick under my chin um, and then I was just rained upon with, with blows. He kicked and stamped all over me. My left ear um, eventually had to be slit seven times because it was like a cauliflower ear. I had his bookmark embedded in my left arm as a bruise. Um, I had black eyes for six uh, for, for two, three weeks. I had a bruise for six weeks that travelled from the top of my head where he hit me with the butt of the gun and travelled down my face and landed on my collarbone. And I can remember one police officer after the uh, the incident said he'd, in the 25 years of service, he had not seen a lump on my head like I had. Um, and yeah, and then he, he after he beat me up, he, he, he was gone. He'd left the shop. And then um, I was taken to the hospital um, and then um, police were looking for him everywhere. Um, I was taken down to theatre to assess my leg, the damage to my leg, because there was so much damage done. Um, and then I think about seven, eight o'clock in the night, then I had uh, the police come to tell me into um, intensive uh, care or the high dependency unit, whichever one I was on at the time, come in to tell me that they'd found him hanging and they, you just cannot believe the the uh, the overwhelming sense of relief that I felt when I heard that police officer say those words. In terms of your sons, obviously this must be an incredibly complicated experience for them, uh, particularly for your uh, former partner's child. How have the boys coped with this particular scenario? Yeah, so um, so obviously, um, you know, Josh wasn't Darren's and Josh had a lot of hatred for Darren. Jack was Darren's son and obviously uh, wanted some sympathy for his father's death after the shooting, even though Jack had witnessed a lot and helped me to actually pack my belongings at one time to leave the house. Um, and he actually told me the one time on holiday, you know, if you if when we go back off ho- on holiday, if you don't divorce him, there's something wrong with you. So Jack had, had seen all this over the years, but still it was his father. Um, and he'd gone to his father, uh, to his uh, to my ex um, family members, um, to his to, to Jack's aunties for some sympathy for his father's death. And sadly, um, I was victim blamed for everything that had happened. And this channel then through to Jack, and I um, I know that Jack was used as a vessel for hatred. And then Jack then became a boy that I no longer recognised. And um, he well, he'd gone from saying to me that you know he's praying for my leg when I was in hospital um, to then it was all my fault that Darren was dead, that his father was dead. Um, so I reached out to social services from my hospital bed because the last time I'd seen Jack was the day of the shooting when he came to see me in hospital and I said you need to remove Jack from this environment he's in. I said it's toxic. I said he needs to be somewhere neutral. I said not necessarily with my family, he needs to be somewhere neutral where they can process this. I said, um, because I'm being victim blamed for everything that's going on, um, I said, and, and Jack is being used as a vessel to channel their anger. And I was told because he was 16, he could live where he wants. Has Jack changed his mind since then? So um, at that point then, Jack still carried on staying with Darren's family. Um, I had no contact with Jack 
the whole of the time I was in hospital other than some nasty texts that went back and forth. Um, you know, this Jack had gone from somebody who even Darren used to say that um, the umbilical cord had not been cut from us um, to a boy I didn't know, know anymore. And I came to the hospital on the 23rd of September and I had a phone call on the 26th of September to tell me that Jack had taken his life. I'm so sorry, Rachel. He's uh, he's he was a, a, an innocent victim of, of domestic abuse and violence because of one man's actions as well. And how has Josh coped with your experience? So Josh obviously hated Darren, um, and he obviously hated him even more then because of the rift that he caused after the shooting between families and between even him and his brother because they had a falling out as well. Um, but you know that was nine years ago, and time is a healer. And um, Josh had some counselling, um, and he, you know he's quite a sensible. Um, level-headed boy and we both you know spoke about Jack's um, actions and what he'd done in his passing and we, you know we said you know he was a strong-willed boy um, you know we've just got to accept that you know rightly or wrongly his actions what he'd done you know whether he was in his right mind or wasn't in his right mind that we've got to accept that what he's done is, he, he's done we can't turn the clock back um, and we just got to hope that he's in a better place. You made a point earlier during the programme where you said that children who um, are within these sorts of contexts are not actually witnesses to domestic violence. They are actually victims of it. Without a shadow of a doubt. And, and that's hugely pertinent at the moment, especially with um, the lockdown that we're all experiencing. People all over the world are staying at home and self-isolating because of the novel coronavirus. And there are concerns that within these enclosed settings, children could be subjected to even more domestic violence and abuse, either as members of a dynamic or also being personally abused themselves, directly, physically and emotionally abused. What do you think we can do um, to, to protect children in these settings? Well, it's going to be really hard because obviously people are, you know, I think it's only a matter of time before we go on total lockdown and people in self-isolation um, homes as well. You know, I said, you know, some some of these houses uh, where there might be domestic abuse happening and there could be a neighbour who suspects for a while there's something been going on next door. You know, if that home is in lockdown and in um, self-isolation and you might offer to do some shopping for them, you know, if it's safe to do so, ask that that um, that woman or those children, is everything okay at home? Because now might be the time that that, that woman might want to disclose, that those children might want to disclose um, and vice versa. You know, if, if you're being abused in a household and you've got the opportunity to go out and do somebody who's, you know, a neighbour who's self-isolating um, near you, you know, and you need to get a message out, you know, perhaps hand it over, you know, with 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 the shopping, um, you know, just be vigilant. You know, it's, now is not the time to be a bystander more than ever. We've got to be vigilant. We've got to, you know, if you think there's domestic abuse going on, you know, uh, you know, phone the police. Even if you don't want to give your name, just say you'd rather not, but just make that call. You know, don't be silent about it now because your silence is deafening to those that are living in that house. Old. You must make the call. And I think for children and, and, and you know, victims and survivors, you know, let's not um, underestimate their strength because they are uh, the, the toughest and strongest 
people I've ever met, you know, they're constantly living in a household with a domestic terrorist because that's what they are, domestic terrorists. And they safety manage and plan every single day. It's going to be a tougher job now. You know, if they now they're not still not ready to make that that move and they're still frightened to, to make that move and leave, you know, perhaps, you know, for me, certainly, I was a strong character, and I think that's uh, why I'm able to carry on and speak my message as my message, my message now to help others. You know, and I, w- I would have a go back at Darren. Um, it wouldn't, wasn't me just cowering in the corner. You know, I, it would, you know, you've got the five Fs, the fight, flop, flight, flop freeze and friend you know now's a time perhaps not to be fighting with your abuser but to be friending your abuser to pacify him more than ever until this lockdown period is over you know there are sort of um safety plans to put in place if you're a victim and survivor you know perhaps go out the garden more with the children not be in the house um you know but try and pacify your domestic terrorist um, as much as you can if you're not ready to make that move. Children uh, who are victims of domestic violence and abuse are also hugely resilient, but some of these children may not necessarily be aware that they are in a domestically violent or abusive home. So what advice do you have for children who are perhaps slightly older, who may be listening to this podcast, who may be living in a, a difficult situation, a challenging situation, but who may not necessarily be recognising the signs? Yeah, if you if you think you know there are the helplines out there, you know you've got these helplines that um, Free in Wales, and then you've got the National Domestic Abuse Helpline run by Refuge. They're open twenty four seven. You can make a call. You know, nobody's going to come knocking your door. Um, you know, and banging the door down. And um, you know, if you're going to, if you're, you're obviously. Um, over 16, I mean, if they, they feel that there's child at, at, at harm, you know, going to possible danger, then obviously, you know, that, that will override that. But, you know, have a conversation with somebody at the end of the phone, you know, and just share your concerns. You haven't got to be suffering in silence. You know, if, if you, you, you're walking around that house like you're almost walking on eggshells every day and you're fearful to open your mouth, you know, when you've got somebody who's, who's quite tyrant, you know, being a tyrant in the house, who's barking orders or constantly or manipulating you or, um, you know, you, you can't live in a, a free, happy home, you know, you've got to be confined to a one room, you, you know, you, you, you're governed and controlled by everything that you do then, you know, that is an abusive uh, environment you're in but there are help helplines out there that you can call and and just speak to somebody reach out you know and even child line are there services out there where for example let's say a child is within um a domestically abusive setting but as you said perhaps they're confined to one room as we know some households at the moment are living in incredibly cramped accommodation there may be eight or nine relatives in one room perhaps the abuse is taking place in that room but with the advent of mobile phones the ability to text are there any services for example that children could access on their phones apps they could download whereby they can either text or record or do something without being immediately noticed because we know of course that abusers tend to react angrily if they feel they're being outed or exposed yeah so i would certainly be keeping a diary if you know especially with coercive control you know if, if you're listening just keep it in your notes in your phone keep it keep a diary but you know i don't know what set up for with childline i'm sure that you know today's te- technology there's bound to be apps 
for, for child line. Um, and I know being in, in the current uh, situation we're in with uh, COVID-19, a lot of um, domestic abuse services are offering now online services and online chats. So, you know, you just Google domestic abuse and, you know, you, you will get the apps coming up that will be able to help you. Fantastic. And what we'll do is when we publish the podcast, we'll also ask um, organisations like the NSPCC, the Children's Society and other domestic abuse helplines that you've mentioned, whether they've got any um, links that we can share as well. So if children want to access those, they can. Yeah. And there's also an app as well called uh, Bright Sky. And it looks like a weather app on your phone. Um, you can download that and then you can put in lo- your location and it tells you what domestic abuse services are in your area. It tells you if you're looking for help for somebody else. There's a lot of different features on there, but it actually looks like a, a weather app. That sounds fantastic. Um, one last question. If you had one piece of advice to give any child living within um, a domestically abusive household, what would it be? Please just reach out. You're not going to get anybody in trouble. You know, um, you haven't got to, to be in that environment because you're not living, you're just existing. Uh, and nobody should live in a household like that. Everybody's entitled to live fear-free um, and make that call. I know it's hard to to actually, you know, um, dob a parent in because of their behaviour. But honestly, just just do it. You know, you're not alone. Um, you won't be the first person, you know, child to do it, and you won't be the last. But there, there is the help out there for you. Mm-hmm.